thank you for the Lighthouse Family Church and for Phil. Mm. Father, we bless him today in your name. Father, that you're going to speak to us the words of truth. Lord, we pray that, Father, we leave this place different in the name of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Amen. 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 And I saw Paula confiscate your microphone halfway through. <laughs> Sit down. Oh, Jesus. Wow, that, w- that was amazing. That worship was just uh, awesome. Awesome. We need to stay in that place. And John, that word was really spot on. I, just as, as you said that, I had the word, and actually the message today is connected with this, because I had a little kind of video going on in my head at the time, and it was having travelled a lot with business, I've been on a lot of aeroplanes, and on the internal American ones where there's not many checks to get on and off flights, so you get on the plane and you sit down and the air stewardess stands up and says, this flight is going to JFK New York. If you do not intend to go to JFK New York, please disembark the plane now. And I had that little thought going through my mind, you see, because, yeah, this is the month of family, and, uh, and was the last month, but I did quite a, quite a long talk on family in December, and I really felt the Lord uh, just get me to reiterate one of our main priorities in the Lighthouse, what the Lighthouse is about, um, and, you know, what I personally am about, my personal crusade, my personal vision, mission, hunger, passion, whatever you want to call it, okay? This is what I'm about, it's how I'm wired. And I felt it was right for us to state at this beginning of the new year what that is, you know? So this is where this plane is going. It is going to this destination and, you know, the Lord's just saying, as John said, it's time to kind of settle one way or the other. Is, is that where I'm going as well? So what I want to talk about and what I felt the Lord put on my heart for this morning is about the glory of God. Okay? It's a subject that has just been resonating around uh, for a number of things which will become obvious that's right, shut out the screams. <laughs> I'm sure it'll settle down. Peace on that room. Peace in the name of Jesus. We need a bigger space, don't we? <laughs> More space to spread out. Yeah. <clears throat> so, for me personally, there's a side of me that cannot stand religion. What, what is religion? Religion is kind of just repeating something. It's just kind of doing something because you did it before. You don't fully know why you're doing it and you're not fully expectant of what the results are going to be. And, you know, that's... We all, no matter what denomination, whatever persuasion we are, can get in that position. We can get to the place where we said, oh, those two chords worked well last week, I'll use them this week. And you do them again, and it's as dead as a dodo. You know, things change. There is something about kind of fresh, fresh manner, fresh oil, fresh presence, fresh revelation, fresh encounter. And there is something inside of me. It doesn't matter how far we've come, 
And God has blessed us. God has really blessed us. And we've experienced a measure of his presence. We've experienced a measure of healing. We've experienced a, a measure of blessing financially. I, I will share some good news just in passing when this little thought pops in because I realised I've never said it up until now. But through the various offerings that we've taken up for the building fund, it t- it's quite complicated calculating how much there is, but we are at a point now where I can categorically say that we have received in those separate offerings up to a £50,000. Okay, so that's really good. And I want to say thank you so much. We also have a promise of, you know, a, a lot more as well, uh, over £100,000. So it, it's really, really good. So probably our fund is standing at about £160,000, £170,000 now towards buying the land which is going to happen this year. I thought I would just launch that out, okay? So we've got 50,000, which is kind of there, tangible, some that's been promised and some that's waiting in the tax system to, to come back. So that's where that is. That is good news. So, but getting back to it, there is something inside me that just really wants the real thing. As I read through the Bible, there's lots of things I come across. And, you know, as old Bill Johnson says, I believe the Bible. I really do. I believe it's all true. It is the word of God. As he says, I even believe the maps. It's like, (laughs) seriously, it's it's all good. And for me, if it's in the Bible, it's all up for grabs. It is something that should be added to our experience of who God is. And so, as I read through a lot of the stories, I see things and I think, no, I haven't done that yet. I'll put that up there on the to-do list, the bucket list, if you like, of things that I really want to grab a hold of before we move on and everything. I mean, there's lots of them, aren't there? You just, just name a few. Multiplication of food. Not, it, it may seem like that at Christmas that that's happening, but I think that's just over-preparation. Um, walking through walls. Jesus walked through a few walls. Uh, crippled bones clicking together as a man stands up who's been crippled from life. I haven't seen that yet. Okay, I know it happens, I, but I haven't seen it. Uh, translation from one town to the next. That was a good one. Forget that on the wrong aeroplane. Let's just kind of whoosh. Let's just get there. and Don't sit on planes for about eight hours. That's a complete waste of time. But translation, that was Philip when he baptised the Ethiopian. As he came up out of the water, he appeared in the adjacent town. It says, you read it. It's in Ephesians, I think. No, Acts. It's in Acts. Um, translation, raising the dead. Now, I've heard lots of stories of that, but come on, it's all fair game. It's there. Finding gold in the fish's mouth. You know, just kind of getting that level of revelation that says, go and pull a fish out of the lake, and then the first one, open its mouth, and there will be a gold coin. That was a miracle enough that there actually was one there, let alone that it went and paid all the taxes and stuff like that. But there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there which we haven't even touched the surface of, isn't there? And uh, not least of all was the level to which the people of God experienced the presence of God. And so that's where I want to camp out a little bit this morning because I believe God is speaking to us 
about a time that is coming in, in, in this season where we will begin to experience the presence of God in a new way, a, a way further than we have done in the past. And so we, I just want to say to you, that's in my heart. I was saying to the guys in the prayer room today, you know, you don't need long, wordy prayers and everything. What you need is to have a hunger in your heart. That is the thing. It is a yearning for the real things of God. Not just talking about it, not just stories, not just kind of doing things well, not just having the appearance of success, good sound, good music, you know, good teaching even. It's all of those things are good and we, we go after them. But there is something more than that. There is the real things of God. There's that, there is that encounter. And as I read things, and I read things about the presence of God, and you've heard me speak before about um, Moses in Exodus 33, about how when he met with God, and we'll come to that scripture in just a minute, but he met with God and spoke with him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That, I read that scripture like 25 maybe even 30 years ago and it ruined me forever because I knew that it was possible it was possible to have that level of encounter with God and I've just read a few stories today you know I'm in Joshua at the moment going through there and and there's little throwaway sentences like the Lord said to Joshua Joshua and Joshua said yes Lord he says oh I want you to go and do and I'm thinking, hang on a minute, this, this is like a conversation that's going on. This is like Joshua heard, responded, and there's a level of detail implicit in that. Now, I love the fact that I can hear the voice of God, and I get a sense of what he's saying, I get a sense of the way that he's leading and directing me, and, you know, giving me sort of plans and directions and all of that. But I believe there's a level of intimacy in there that I have yet to experience and break into. A level of clarity that really is like sitting face to face, kind of a man with his friend, just chatting, just talking, and just the secrets of God's heart being revealed and him understanding the secrets of my heart. And that's something that I've always really gone for. But beyond that, there is this whole thing of the manifestation of his presence. And... This is why this is the aeroplane message, okay? Because I believe it is going to happen because it is such a yearning in my heart. And it's like I say, whilst prayer is good and we can pray and we can say, Lord, send revival now and begin with us, begin with it. We can get into English like that. Something that is far more powerful is a real hunger within our hearts to see the kingdom of God come. Just something that is aching, something that is yearning, because it pulls down on heaven. It is the spirit of intercession. That is the Holy Spirit coming, taking hold of your heart, setting it on fire, and saying, man, I've got to have that. It's like that story that Brani was talking about, about the guy that you know, found the pearl of great price in the field and went and sold everything he had to own that field so that he could have the pearl. There's got to be kind of a givenness in this that will not settle for second best, will not settle for the okay. 
but we'll just kind of push further and further. So let's just begin to look at it a little bit. And I just read a few stories out, okay, if that's all right by you, just to get the picture of what I believe our experience with God needs to be like. You know, and please don't get me wrong, I have a good relationship with God. I am fully in the knowledge that he's my father. He loves me a lot. He kind of t- he's got plans for me. We do games and adventures and all of that. But he has also put this thing in me that just says there's more. The the game is going to get a lot more exciting. So, let's just go with that, okay? So, my first example of just people experiencing the presence of God. I mean, there's lots of them in the Bible, lots and lots and lots, but I've just picked a few. But And the reason why I picked this one in 2 Chronicles 7 is because it is the first time in the notes in the Bible where it mentions Shekinah, okay? And that's something I'm kind of quite interested in at the moment. So it's 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying... Fire flashed down from heaven, burnt up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, do you think it's quite important, the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple? It says it three times in one... In one passage. They fell down on the ground and worshipped, praised the Lord, and they praised the Lord saying, he is good, his faithful love endures forever. And when it talks about that glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, which it mentions three times, sometimes if you've got a study Bible, and a, like a New King James study Bible or something, if you look in the margin of that, quite often it references this word Shekinah, Shekinah glory of God and it's something which we sing about the songs and there's something which we speak about but actually it's not really mentioned in the Bible only in the notes and apparently it is something that the rabbis used to write against a verse or against a part of scripture where the tangible presence of God came into the room or came onto the mountaintop or came in the burning bush, they would write Shekinah. And what it literally means is the dwelling place of a dwelling God. A dwelling place of a dwelling God. The Shekinah glory of God. And, you know, if there's one thing that my heart is hungry for, it's that we, individually and corporately, can become the dwelling place of a dwelling God. Not that is a place that is happy with individual experiences and individual encounters and individual words, but just where we would become a place where the glory of God dwells on a permanent basis, where we just get very comfortable and very familiar with it. So Israel, their experience, and probably one of the next times that it mentions Shekinah, uh, was as Israel left Egypt, wasn't it? And they uh, set out across the wilderness. And that's, I think that's the first time that we hear about God manifesting himself to Israel in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
And uh, again, this is kind of Shekinah. It is like when the presence of God comes and dwells with his people. Fire and cloud. I, I always think this is amazing. You know, Israel heading out across the wilderness. And the wilderness, by definition, is a pretty bleak place, isn't it? It's like desert. It's like there's not a lot there. And so, you know, what better thing could you have as you're going across the wilderness than a pillar of fire at night to keep you warm? The desert gets very cold at night. And to keep away the wild animals. That You know, God manifested himself in that place in a way that was useful as well as amazing. Okay, And then during the day, he manifested himself as a pillar of cloud. And in the day, the place gets very hot. And it's a, it's a brutal, brutal place. And I just had this picture of Israel as they went through the wilderness, of them carrying their own private atmosphere with them as they went around from place to place. That was protecting them against the elements, protecting them against the enemy that was chasing them, they just had this very miraculous time, didn't they? Where all the time they went through the wilderness, none of them were ill. Okay, No one got ill amongst them. None of their clothes wore out. That's a long time to be in the wilderness. And as they came through to the promised land, they, it said there was no one sick or weak among them. And that was from them living in this atmosphere where the presence of God went with them in a very real way. So, cloud by day, fire by night. Shekinah. Let's just make a mental note of that. The other thing is, like, you know, Moses, who, that that scripture that I mentioned in uh, Exodus 33, I, I just find it amazing that he could have had that relationship. You know, he saw kind of all manner of things. He, saw, he spoke face to face with God as a man speaks to his friend. And yet, in Exodus 33, he said, okay, Lord, show me your glory. You know, even then he said, show me your glory. Show me your glorious presence. Even he, who had that kind of very, very intimate relationship with God, knew that there was more. There was something else to be revealed in the heart of God. Moses started off his life, his very beginning uh, encounter with God was in the burning bush, wasn't it? How often does God manifest himself as fire and as cloud in the Bible? Quite a lot, actually. So Moses' initial uh, encounter was in Genesis 3, if you're making notes. And uh, let's just read this out, the beginning of Genesis 3. So Moses led the flock far into the wilderness. How often do some of our encounters come after we have been led far into the wilderness? There seems to be something in that, that the Holy Spirit leads us to a place where we really come to the end of our resources in order to encounter him. And there's a number of people here that this relates to. But he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing. That's the sort of thing I would have said. That would have been me if I was standing there. 
this is amazing. Let's go and have a look at this. Moses said to himself, why isn't that bush burning up? I must go and see it. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here am I, Moses replied. There we go, there's that little conversation going again. That was his very first encounter. That was the thing that stirred him up, that got him off the hiding track and into the beginning of the destiny that God had for him. So another encounter Moses had, Exodus 24. Let's read that out. And this is when Moses is first uh, getting the commandments of God to bring down to Israel. So Exodus 24, verse 12. Then Moses climbed up the mountain and the cloud covered it. Okay, fire, cloud, here we're on the cloud again. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. There seems to be this repeating thing that where God manifests himself in the fire in the bush he calls from within the fire. When God manifested himself as the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai he calls Moses from within the cloud. So he called Moses from inside the cloud to the Israelites at the foot of the mountain. The glory of the... Forgive me. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. So God manifests himself as a cloud, but to the Israelites down at the bottom, it looks like a fire. The cloud, the fire, it's kind of a bit kind of interchangeable. And then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed up higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then a little bit later on, after the second time Moses goes up into the cloud, it says, when Moses came down Mount Sinai, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So he'd kind of spent 40 days up in the glory and when he came down, his face was shining. It was just shining because the glory of the Lord kind of was still upon him. So let's just have a quick look then at this Exodus 33. We'll read some bits out, but I just feel it's right to read some of these scriptures out so that we can get it inside of us, the experiences the pattern that is laid down in scripture. Okay, it's, This is not just me saying, this is what I want. Uh, if people are getting a bit warm, throw a few windows open around the, the thing. We keep them closed when the music's on so we don't annoy the neighbours, but please throw them open if it's too hot. So Exodus 33, starting somewhere in there. You'll have to find it. I think it might be the beginning. It might be number one. It was Moses' practice to take the tent of meeting and set it up some distance from the camp. And everyone who wanted to make a request of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Now, whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all of the people would get up and stand at the entrances of their own tents and they would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside. As he went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. So there we go, we've got another manifestation of the kind of tangible presence. Now, now what I'm talking about this is like, this is not kind of people seeing with their 
sort of spiritualize, as it were, this is something that everyone saw all together. It was kind of the real stuff, okay? It it was there. Because we do, you know, God can make us see with the eyes of the Spirit. And many people come up to me. I mean, after one little talk that we were doing, three separate people came up to me and said, I saw an angel standing right beside you. And it was clothed in rainbow colours. Three people said the same thing. Rainbows, angel, standing beside me. So I said, there must have been one standing beside me. And that's with the eyes of the Spirit. But this was with their physical eyes. They could see it. So they would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside. And as he went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down, hover at the entrance. Well, he spoke, I've read that. When the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their tents. Inside the tent of the meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And afterwards, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. I would have liked his job. Oh my goodness, kind of being in there and around there when all of that action was going on, but just like staying in there afterwards, kind of in the presence of God, was just would have been absolutely amazing. And one day Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, uh, I know you by name and I look favourably upon you. If that's true, (laughs) if it is true that you look favourably on me, then let me know your ways so that I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favour. And remember that this nation is your very own people. And the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest and everything will be fine for you. I love that sentence. I just think, you know, when the presence of God is with us, everything is fine for us. Everything kind of begins to go well when his presence is around us. And then Moses said to him, a little bit cheekily, if you don't mind me saying, if you don't personally go with us, then please don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favourably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? Because your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other peoples on the earth. That is the thing that sets us apart, is his presence amongst us. When his presence comes, that is the thing that's different. You know, we can do all sorts of good things. We can have programs, we can have, you know, uh, do the soup kitchen, the feeding the homeless, the clothing the homeless, we can look after the sick, we can have hearts of compassion. We can be like that and we can be like the best of everyone else in the world who's kind of very organised and yes, we should be like that. You know, that is part of who we are and everything. But we're no different than other people in the world. And the Lord is saying here that there is a mark which will set us apart from the other peoples of the world. Our job on earth is not just to look after people. It really isn't, okay? It is our job on earth is to lead people to the Father. That is the main thing that we're doing. Now, part of the way that he does that 
is through compassion and is through healing and is through deliverance and is through whatever. It's through us being looking after people. But our, we must remember what the main thing is, which is to lead people to the Father. So how will people know that we're any different? How will people know that we're any different if the presence of God is not with us? Your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. And the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked for, for I look favourably on you and I know you by name. And then Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. You know, I just can't get my head around that. How can he say, show me your glorious presence when he's already seen the pillar of cloud come down. He's already sat and spoke with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. He knew there was something more and there was something in his heart that was just wanting to pull on heaven and see a manifestation of his presence that he had not experienced until that time. And of course, you know the rest of the story where it goes on and the Lord says, I'll make all my goodness pass in front of you. So, that's kind of part one, okay? That's part one of a biblical basis for experiencing the presence of God. Now, the thing that has like, set all of this resonating in me at the moment and that I believe that the Lord is beginning to just stir us up is that by chance, and mainly Bryony kicked us off on this, we've just started looking into the stories of Azusa Street at the moment, which is little church uh, in Los Angeles, um, where you know, I had the joy to be over there, just recently visiting Jean Darnell uh, in Los Angeles, that same place. And the more we've read these stories, the more we begin to think the Lord's got us on a journey to experience some of the things that have happened in this place. And so I just want to read like a couple of stories. There is this book, you can Google it, right? It's like they told us their stories. And it is about a guy who went and interviewed some of the children who were involved in what happened at Azusa Street and wrote down their stories. It's just free as a PDF, you can download it and it's very encouraging. It's it's kind of very exciting. There's a load of other books as well um, but this is where I've got some of the things going on. So Azusa Street, what was it about? It was basically about a place in downtown LA in 1906, so 110 years ago this year and the pastor of that church was a guy called William Seymour and he was a black pastor and he'd actually been asked to leave his church because he discovered the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and as evidenced by the speaking in tongues, uh, speaking in other languages that uh, the Holy Spirit can enable within us and everything. And he received this gift and went enthusiastically to his church and they say, get out, we don't want that. And so he left And he began meeting in his own home in this little kind of back street in LA or whatever. And very soon the church got quite big and they couldn't fit in the house and so they began spilling out onto the street and he would stand on the steps of his house and people would gather outside in the street and and he would begin to preach and the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, was, was happening. People were receiving the gifts 
and they were speaking in tongues and having prophecy and words of knowledge and all sorts of exciting things were going on. But the police came and shut them down. They said, no, you've got too big. You've got to, you can't do this. You, you can't do this anymore. And so William Seymour said to the Lord, okay, because William Seymour had in his heart, so he, there he was, had this kind of big group of people gathering around him. They had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. They were having words of knowledge, prophecy, all of that stuff activating around them. But he knew there was more. He, he knew that God wanted to do something else in the area that was going to affect the entire community and, and maybe even beyond that, which he called revival. He called it revival. And he said, you know, Lord... If you want me to continue to preach this revival thing, then you have got to provide a building for us. And so in that moment, he's kind of praying, and the Lord says, okay then, get on this tram, get on tram number eight, and await further instructions. And so William Seymour gets on, and he buys his ticket, and he gets on the tram, and he's sitting there. And after a few stops, the Lord says to him, right, get off now. And so he gets off and he's in a district of LA which probably he shouldn't be in because he was black and this was a white district and there was still kind of quite heavy segregation at that time. And the Lord tells him to walk down the street until he gets to a place and he says, right, knock on that door. <laughs> it was very risky for a black man in a white area of LA at night time, okay? This was like in the hours of darkness. So he goes and knocks on the door and this little old lady comes and opens it up, opens up the door and says, yes, can I help you? And uh, which is a miracle in itself. She didn't slam the door and call the police or whatever. They could have called the police in those days. I'm not sure when the telephone was invented. <coughs> but anyway, she opens and John, uh, William Seymour says to her, Madam, I believe that you are in there praying for revival as we speak and I am the man who is going to preach revival for you. And she said, oh, well, you better come in then. <laughs> and so <laughs> she, the door opens, he goes in and there's a little group of ladies who are in there praying. They've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're praying in tongues and they just begin to pray together and from amongst them, they decide at that moment, they hear his story that he needs a building, and they say, right, let's take up an offering. And just from amongst this group of people, they get enough money to go and buy a warehouse stroke disused church down in downtown LA, kind of big old building. And, uh, and Azusa Street is born. They get that place, they start working together, uh, and it, it really is a miracle because blacks and whites just did not work together in this way. But literally they all got together. Uh, William Seymour got all his friends in and the lady got all her friends in who were moving in the circle. And they began to work on this building and they knocked up pews from old crates and pallets and stuff like this. It was real spit and sawdust. It had dirt floors. It had... Apparently the ceiling was so low that tall people had to duck as they went in. It was, and it was stiflingly hot in the place, but no one seemed to mind. And they just began meeting together and praying and calling out for revival in the area until 
One day, it began to happen amongst them. They would get together sometimes, and in this kind of baptism of the Holy Spirit, a little bit like we have done this morning, they just began to worship in the Spirit. They began to worship in these new languages that they'd been given by the gift of the Spirit. And they would worship and pray, sometimes for well over an hour, just without stopping, without drawing breath, they would just go for it. And then one day, as, it, as they were doing that, this unusual cloud began to appear around their feet. Uh, and it was like a golden, sparkly cloud that uh, was just drifting around at foot level. And the more they prayed, the more they worshipped, the higher this cloud came up. And sometimes it would like literally fill the whole building. And people were just, it was a bit like the burning bush. They said, this is amazing. Let's go and have a look at this. And they would get down, they would lie down in the cloud and they, they said you could breathe it in. It was a physical thing that everybody could see. We're not just talking a few spiritual people who could see this in their mind's eye. This was everyone could see it. And they had the kids in there. The kids were playing in it. They were trying to scoop it together. They were trying to put it in jam jars. They were, they were kind of playing hide and seek in it when it got so thick. These are the stories. You can read them for yourself of, of how all of these things were done. And, uh, but more than that, when this presence came, there were just some amazing things that happened. We'll get onto that in just a moment. So, why am, I, why am I kind of getting, like, connected with this? Because in the process, and as you read this, this little download, um, you'll realise there's a connection between Jean Darnell and Azusa Street. And they talk about Azusa Street, um, talk about Jean Darnell quite a lot in the, in the document. And it turns out that her mother was a child there, we believe. It's, um, yeah. Um, who was also called Jean, I believe. And, um, but she was there as a three year old girl. And Jean often tells this story of how this three year old girl would go and just loved to go to church. She would just come in and the presence of God would be drifting around on the floor. And uh, this little three year old girl, the first thing she would do is come in lie down under the pew in the cloud and take a nap. She would just go to sleep in the presence of God and she'd be breathing it in and then she would wake up and she would try and gather all the cloud around her and, and kind of all of this stuff. And it was just amazing. And, you know, Jean actually went on to, uh, to be a pastor at a church called Angelus Temple in LA that was run by a lady called Amy Semple McPherson who was a, a real pioneer of uh, kind of things of the spirit in that time. Some amazing things came out of Azusa Street. Like some of the things that I've discovered was there was a load of women that were launched into ministry at this time um, and it started really with William Seymour and his wife because they would joint share the, the pulpit, which was really unheard of at that time. It was kind of men were the guys who were in ministry, but they launched this Pentecostal sort of movement where men and women were just kind of equal status and they just stepped out and kind of moved out in revival. And it's very, very exciting. But more than that, 
there were these incredible stories. I'm just going to... I'm going to say I'm going to finish off, but let me just check whether I am. I am just going to finish off with a couple of stories, okay? Um, So, and you can download them and read them all. They are well worth reading, okay? So, so one's just about the Shekinah glory to start with, and it's um, a story that's told by this brother, Anderson, just to kind of give you a feeling of what it was like. So... um, I asked Brother Anderson to describe what the Shekinah glory was like. And he again brightened up as he came to the edge of his rocker. They're all very old when they're kind of telling the stories. And Anderson told me that the Shekinah glory was hard to explain because it could only be described but not understood. At times he would come into the building and there would be a kind of glow and there were times when God would start moving and working and a smoke-like substance would begin to glow even brighter. People could walk through it and sometimes it would sort of roll and you couldn't take a fan and blow it out nor was it something you could pick up. Brother Anderson confessed that he tried because it looked so tangible. He remembered that at times the mist would get so thick that it would fill the whole building. Anderson also noted that at times even Seymour was fascinated with the heavy mist that filled the room. In fact, there were times that Seymour would take his feet and kind of play with the thick Shekinah glory. And Brother Anderson was awed by the glory and finally described it as part of heaven coming down. You could walk in it, sit down in it, run your hands through it and breathe it into your lungs, but you could not capture it. I pressed Brother Anson to tell me about the fire. Although he was not one of the first to go out and witness the event, he told me that he had seen it. He said it looked like flames about 50 feet in the air coming down and also going up out of the roof to meet, merge and go through the flame coming down. Young Anderson would just stand there with his mouth open. He didn't know how to explain it, but it was real. He told me that the burning bush described by Moses now made sense to him. So this, this is something like, so this cloud's kind of drifting around and it's filling up and at times it kind of went right up to the ceiling and appeared as flames of fire. And it is a documented fact that the fire department were called out on many occasions to Azusa Street because people outside saw flames coming from the roof. 50 foot flames coming from the roof and they thought the place was on fire but of course when they got there they, they couldn't see it and it was all it, it wasn't happening so but this is kind of a, a real thing which happened 110 years ago so not, not, not that long ago so here's another story Sister Laura I remember asking Sister Laura how many miracles or healings did you participate in and she thought for a moment I attended every night, so they met seven days a week, three times a day for meetings for, from 1906 to about 1910, so for four years. So I attended every night and there were at least three or four every night. Not long into our talk, I would ask the same question of Sister Laura that I asked of every saint. What was the greatest miracle or healing that you were personally part of? Sister Laura would 
would tell me about one of the most exciting miracles she was involved in and one of the most exciting miracles ever at Azusa. Here's her story. A woman came into the meeting holding a staff, a big stick, and she was leaning on it. She could hardly breathe and she looked like a skeleton. She only lived about two miles from Azusa and had started walking to Azusa about three in the afternoon but didn't reach the warehouse until six in the evening. She literally took one baby step at a time, placing her staff in front of her and then scooting her feet up to it and repeating the slow, tedious process until she reached the revival meeting. She reminded me of the woman in the Bible who knew that if she just touched the hem of the garment of Jesus, she would be healed. That evening at Azusa, this woman was determined to get healed. She came in and looked around as if she were studying the room. At some point, her eyes met Laura's and she said, that's the woman I want to pray for me, pointing to Sister Laura. Sister Laura walked over to her and said, Mother, what can I do for you? The next word the lady spoke were almost haunting. I won't live through the night if God doesn't heal me. I'll die. Doctors say my lungs are ate up with cancer and I can hardly breathe. I've been losing weight for about a year. This dear, feeble, elderly woman weighed 65 pounds. So, what's that? That's kind of about four stone. Okay. Standing at about five feet, six inches tall, she was nothing but bones. Sister Laura laid hands on her and prayed for her. Immediately, she was able to breathe normally. In the next three hours, wait for this, in the next three hours, she would gain 40 pounds while in the meeting, yet she ate nothing. She only breathed in the Shekinah glory. She said, my lungs are not hurting. I can breathe like when I was young. Yes, there was a great celebration that evening. Sister Laura, the writer says, was a shouter. Her glory bun shook loose and hairpins flew everywhere as she celebrated with this dear saint. But that's not the end of the story. Oh no. That's not the end of the story. The lady went to her doctor, Thomas White, who later founded Wings of Healing. And when she went to his office, he asked her if she had filled out the form for first-time patients. Had to fill out. He didn't recognise her. When she told him who she, who she was, he couldn't believe she was the same person. After running some tests and checking her out, he told her that her insides were just like new. Lungs and all, in an amazement, he told her, there is no way you could have gained that much weight back since the last time I saw you. It is impossible. That's just one of the story. There are just so many of these things that happen. You know, when I hear stories like that, I think, hang on a minute, it's in the Bible... It's kind of legitimate, it's fair game if it's in the Bible, and they've had it. Okay, so I want that. Do you know how Azusa Street happened? There was a few people gathered together who began reading stories about the Welsh Revival. They began reading reports of what happened in the Welsh Revival, and they said, I want that. That could happen here. That could really happen here. And so they began to pray. They took these stories and these reports, and they said, Lord, do it here. 
do it here in this place. So there's lots of stories that would just encourage you if you read them. And probably one of the most exciting things, I suppose, that came out of the end of the whole thing was that there was a prophecy released at that time in, uh, in the midst of what was going on, sometime between kind of 1906 and 1920, where God said to them through, through the prophets, they said, this is all going to happen again in about 100 years' time. Okay? And we are in about 100 years' time. I'm not aware of it having happened anywhere else as yet. Okay? So I'm kind of putting my hand up and saying, we'll have that. Okay? That's, that is the thing that we're going for. Heather and I had the very, very great privilege of visiting Bethel a few years ago. And we just so happened to be there in this kind of two-week period when this amazing golden cloud started appearing <laughs> up in the ceiling. We, we saw it with our own eyes. We were there, we witnessed it. And literally everyone in the room could see it. It was like this kind of gold dust that was up in the ceiling, sparkling around, just kind of going there. And actually, if you look at some of the, the, the YouTube things of it, it looks like smoke at times. Now, we didn't see it like that thick, but we saw this cloud appearing over certain areas of the room as we were watching. And, you know, and Bill said, this is like a foretaste. This is, this is something. And I believe we were supposed to be there to see that, to witness it, because... I believe it is real and I believe that God wants to do something amongst us. I really do believe he wants to manifest his presence and his glory amongst us that will release some of these things. You know, as we were praying at the prayer supper the other night with Les and Jean, and we we had on our little thing, we had finances and healing to be praying for. And I just, as we prayed, I just thought, oh man, you know, you can pray for these individual things but if we get the presence of God, if we get the glory of God manifested amongst us, all of these other things are going to happen. It's just, he is the answer. His presence is the answer. Seeking his face, seeking his glory is really the answer. So, I just wanted to put that out there, okay, at the beginning of the year. This plane is going to Gloryville. If this is not your destination, <laughs> then please Im- disembark. No. I mean, <laughs> well, we don't want you going to the wrong place. It's okay. Nothing's wrong. Nothing, nothing. I'm just saying, that's kind of what's in my heart. That's what in, is in the heart of a lot of people here. That has what has drawn people together at this time for the real thing. Come on, God, in this time, there are so many people out there who don't know Jesus. And you can have a measure of impact by being kind to them. And that's good. And we will continue to do that. And you can look at all the programs that came out of Azusa Street to just care for the poor. And to, it was actually called the Azusa Street Mission. You know, they, they were out there and people went to the ends of the world. But how much more impact when the glory of God comes and those sort of healings take place. You read some of those stories and get it in you, particularly as we go into this next weekend and Ian Andrews comes and spends a little bit of time with us because I believe he's going to stir up that healing well and he's going to stir up faith amongst us to believe 
that that is what God wants us to do at this time. So, shall we just stand and pray as we finish? Have you got things you specifically want to say? Okay, I'll just pray first. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word to us. And I, I just thank you for your kindness and your grace and your mercy which you've, you've poured out upon us. Thank you that you have gathered a bunch of hungry people together who just really want to experience your presence and your glory, Lord. We, wa- we want to be in that place where the cloud comes and where people start getting healed and delivered and set free and exciting stuff really begins to flow amongst us. So we just position ourselves and say, yes, Lord, I, here I am. Here I am, Lord. It's like, it's like you're speaking to us and saying, Mark, Paula, Phil, Heather, Mike, whoever it is, you know, our response is, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I want to go to that place. That, that's the destination that we want to go. For the sake of your name, Lord, for the sake of your name and for the sake of the people in our area, Father, that are dying and not having a knowledge of uh, not being in relationship with Jesus as their saviour. And Lord, we don't want to see that happen because your heart is that none should perish, but all should come to eternal life. And so we just say, Lord, now, come. Come, Lord. We're, we're here, we're positioned, we're hungry. Will you light that fire in, in everyone's heart, Lord, that, who you have called to be a part of this journey? Lord, let that yearning, let that hunger, let that just, let us not have any spirit of compromise that will settle for second best. Lord, we've tasted it and it is good and we want to go further. So light a fire within us, Lord. Light a fire that just will be unstoppable. Father, as we push forward, as we, as we make a requirement on heaven, for heaven to come down and be manifested amongst us. Father God, for the sake of your name, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Awesome word. Thank you, Phil. Now, if any of you feel that uh, things that Phil has been saying that have stirred you and you would like some prayer, we'll have the prayer ministry team available up here. We've got a word of knowledge.